Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. My guest today is sound and visual artist Steve Wanna. Based in Washington, D.C., Steve's work spans a variety of disciplines, including music composition, sound design for dance collaboration, installation works, 2D and 3D visual art, and photography. Collaborative by nature and using non-traditional graphic notations and language, his music compositions offer a unique kind of exploration in musical performance. He's presented work at numerous conferences like Seamus and the International Computer Music Conference. He's worked with groups including the Firewire Ensemble in Chicago and is a founding member of the Bay Players Experimental Music Collective. You can find out more about Steve on his website, stevewana.com. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. So I'm really interested to dive into some of your work and some new pieces that uh, that I have discovered from your website and things that you've been up to lately. But before we do that, I always like to get a little bit of background to kind of start the show off. So could you talk a little bit about some formative experiences or inspirations and feel free to take, you know, take us back as far as you'd like. Sure. Um, it's definitely been a, a nonlinear journey <laughs> in some ways. I started out um, doing pretty much what every music student, I think, does, uh, which is, you know, write fairly straightforward um, instrumental music and that sort of thing. And um, towards the end of my, uh, or halfway, about halfway through my doctorate uh, work, um, I started to sort of get introduced to new ideas and different <clears throat> composers that hadn't you know, studied before in school. Um, and that sort of took me on a journey that um, led me to where I am today by way of, um, you know, I slowly became disinterested in um, doing what I was doing and I became more interested in exploring um, sort of nonlinear forms and um, um, unusual ways of uh, thinking about music and expressing music uh, I became more and more interested in process uh, as opposed to just cranking out a, you know, a crafted piece, so to speak. Um, you know, I spent a year in Paris after my doctorate and I uh, learned a lot, but I mostly did a lot of thinking. And I think I wrote maybe one piece because uh, I was more um, sort of taking in everything I'd studied and, and uh, absorbing and learning. And, and that was sort of the beginning of, uh, of my interest in, in uh sort of nonlinear process-based um, uh, composition and, and sort of uh, expression in general. And, I, you know, from that on, I started writing, uh, finding, I should say, not, not just writing, but exploring ways of expressing these ideas. And that led me to, I'm, I'm more interested in general in um, sort of fully organic works that, you know, give rise to their own form, give rise to their own... Uh, even outward form, uh, which in, in music would be the score. And so I started finding myself, you know, struggle for a bit trying to find ways of representing these things in, in score form. Eventually found ways that, um, through a lot of sort of uh, trial and error, that, that worked with each piece, and each piece generates its own, 
language in a sense or its own scores. And some of it is, you know, graphic by nature. Some of it is um, purely verbal, just, you know, using language, instructional language. Uh, I became interested in language as a, um, because of its uh, sort of openness to um, interpretation. You, know, you could say, uh, give a simple instruction, do this thing. And uh, five different people might interpret it five different ways, uh, which became uh, a thing of interest to me. Yeah. Um, so you know, some some scores had uh, graphic notation, some scores have uh, verbal uh, scores, and uh, and more and more, I became interested in uh, sort of creating a uh, uh, either a sort of an uh, you know sonic ecosystem or a a few ideas or a process or something like that, and allowing uh, the piece to sort of be generated each time uh, anew with each performance uh, rather than uh, just going through what I want. The performers would basically become co-composers in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Which yeah, is that's... a risky thing. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to touch on that, but I want to go back to something that you said earlier that I'm, I'm sort of curious about. So when you were in Paris, this was at the uh, Zanakis... Uh, yeah. Yes, center center for uh, the english would be center for composition in music i think Yanis something to that effect yeah and it's but changed there, since then yeah and there you were studying computer music uh yeah i i well i was doing uh, some research in my doctoral work i was doing some uh, theoretical work on uh, zanakis's work and discovered the center and and i sort of decided to go spend uh, they, they have a course basically eight month course in uh, electronic music um it's a combination of um, seminars and lectures by, by um, you know, people like uh, Rizé and uh, uh, Maki Solnes and uh, Agostino Di Scipio, people like that, and Curtis Rhodes. Um, plus, you have, you know, lab time. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a nice time to, to sort of learn and, and um, be introduced to different ideas. And, uh, and also, I thought I would do um, a little bit more sort of theoretical research with the library there and uh, mm. his collection was housed in, in the library in Paris. And so it was some sort of a combination. Uh, I ended up not doing a whole lot of theoretical work, um, to be honest. But, mm. uh, uh, but yeah, so that's that was electronic music. And I had be started becoming interested in electronic music towards the end of my uh, halfway, about halfway through my doctorate, two years in or so. So, and, and I read on your website, this was uh, your other degree work was at the University of Maryland. Yes. And did you yeah. do all of your degrees there or just the doctorate? Nope, or? just the doctorate. Yeah, I did okay. uh, my master's undergrad at James Madison. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Uh, okay, well, let's go back then to what you were saying about this sort of uh, process uh, and, and composer uh, performer collaboration. It reminds me a lot of uh, Herbert Brun's idea of the, mm -hmm. the coiner. Uh, that, that comes to mind when I hear you talk about this and when I look at your works, uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reminded. So even sometimes the language sort of reminds me a little bit of, of the kind of introductions to the scores that we'd get in Herbert Brun's music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting concept that process is perhaps, in, in your uh, idea, maybe more important than whatever the end product of the piece is going to be. That's a unique aspect to your music. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting this the, the, that I find myself here because I'm a I'm a bit of a control freak <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to my work and uh, I'm a perfectionist and it's a very odd uh, thing that I find myself doing this 
Uh, I should probably clarify that I don't necessarily give up everything as far as um, end result. And it, it became a gradual process of giving up, to be honest with you, because when I first started doing this, I, I resisted myself a lot uh, because I'm, you know, of, my, of my natural tendencies to be quite controlling of, of, um, of the end product. What you know, the way I justified it to myself, or the way I explained it to myself, um, is that it's not that I'm not interested in the end result. It's that I'm interested in a um, any number of end results that are arising from a set of sort of possible options. Mm-hmm. If that was to make sense. And and in my um, scores or in my pieces, I actually control the variables quite a bit. You know, I'm, I'm sort of certain things I'm not interested in controlling and those would be left to chance but uh, but certain things I'm they're sort of quite controlled so um which is why it's a risk because if a, a performer were to grab it and say oh okay I can do whatever and it's going to fall apart but if somebody picks up on these nuances and and sort of um delves deep into it you know the results can be quite beautiful yeah um uh, so yeah, it's, it, it is giving up certain things, uh, but basically it's, you know, it's, uh, I used to use the analogy of, of you know, you put a, a kid in a, in a playpen, uh, they can do whatever they want in that enclosure with whatever toys they have. And, uh, and uh, you know, that sort of, it's confined within that space and whatever is available in that space and whatever is outside that space is not available. So hmm. there's a wide quite a wide range of possible outcomes for any piece. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, I, I sometimes um, I'm surprised to find in there because I wasn't expecting them and they really shouldn't have been in there. Huh. Um, by the same token, there are sometimes things that surprise me that uh, if I think about it, that's yes, it's, a, it's very possible. I just hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Uh, so it goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, a common ground that we share is uh, percussion. Uh, me being a percussionist, and and mm-hmm. you've written several pieces for percussion. I wonder what what you found of interest with that sort of sound world, and do you feel like you have a particular piece that's a a good example of your your interest in that area? Yeah, uh, I find percussion to be probably um, the the aspect of Western music that has the least amount of baggage <laughs> attached to it, <laughs> uh, and percussionists by extension are the same. You know, most percussionists are quite open to these sort of experimental ideas a lot more than um, other performers in general. Yeah, and the way they approach them is is much more playful and much more open. I think partly because percussionists exist in a world that is not fully defined or or entirely defined or solely defined by pitch and rhythm. Rhythm, possibly yes, but not pitch, and and so that because of that, their their sort of their sonic palette is already rich coming in. Uh, you know, you're a percussionist, you know more than I do that you have to basically be able to play every percussion instrument in the uh, in the orchestra or available out there. Sure, sure. Uh, and that affords you a you know you you think of a violinist, their their sound world is the violin. Right. A percussionist, their sound world is my god <laughs> is everything really everything, yeah yeah and it and, encompasses and, uh, everything so and some you know some percussionists are are more conservative than others and that their sound world is only the timpani or only yeah. orchestral percussion Absolutely. but Absolutely. but then there yeah. are some of us like like myself who sort of see the whole world as our as our instrument yeah. um and so yeah. a, a piece that uh that i that you had sent to me uh, a long uh years ago i guess it was probably 2007 or 2008 mm-hmm. was this piece called abeyance mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, and I remember that piece, and I I still keep it. Uh, I I had uh, thought about programming some of your pieces with my students, and I I brought some of them in. Um, I think it was. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember now which the piece was. Uh, the ensemble piece that you had. Uh, Trajectoria, probably. Ah, uh, that's probably yes, yes, that was yeah. it. And yeah, it was yeah. just a little bit conceptually above the the students at the time. I, I could probably do it now, uh, but at the yeah. time it was a little bit. Uh, kind of out of their comfort zone. So we weren't able to do that one, but these are still in my uh, file and, uh, you know, I'm keeping them earmarked for when I have just the right, <laughs> just the right <laughs> students to do them. But this abeyance piece is pretty interesting to me. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that piece. Sure. So I have to think back now. I mean, both of them were pieces where I was working with this idea of controlling certain things, leaving certain things out of out of my control, playing with this sort of uh, idea of interactivity and activity, so that you know, I was, I was becoming, I think, more and more interested in the the relationships of everybody who partakes in this process of what we call music. Um, so the performer sitting on stage, you know, where their mind is, uh, the audience, where their mind is, uh, me as the composer, where my mind is. I'm not trying to control it, but I'm just sort of trying to acknowledge it, and. Um, I think in abeyance, there's two performers and they're sort of uh, engaging in this dance, so to speak, an actual dance, but, but almost a dance. So the, the stage is, you know, sectored off into six places and they're basically chasing each other on the stage. And in some cases they are, I mean, it's difficult to not be aware of the other person, but I tried in, in, uh, in some instances, for instance, to completely isolate one performer from the other in the sense that uh, forcing the performer to go as inwardly as possible so that uh, the, the presence of the other person becomes mere coincidence. And it's not like they're trying to engage with each other in any way. Uh, and other times they are engaging. So there's this, the score allows the opportunity for openness so that the, the two can interact in some ways. And in some cases, um, it almost forces uh, one or the other to be closed off from the other person uh, and just only paying attention to themselves. And um, so I was just sort of interested in that dynamic of the performer, you know, where, where is the mind of the performer on stage? They're not, you know, listening for the other performer, trying to sing or trying to react or trying to do anything. They're just completely entirely in their own little world, which is difficult to do. I mean, uh, as, as you know, when you're performing in an ensemble, you sort of have to listen. You know, that's what you're trying to do. Right. So I was playing with that a little bit and, and playing with the um, sort of with the audience watching this. Uh, in the per- percussionist's case, um, they actually generate their score on on stage. You know, they have to sit there and take time and look at the thing and actually write stuff out. So there's this sort of deliberate, almost theatrical, almost meditative process to it, plus this sort of slow movement between the two. And it's, just, it's kind of like a choreographed, very deliberate, ritualistic almost yeah. uh, thing to it. So that, that's that's what, what I was interested in, essentially.
Yeah, but very... the sounds are not all all controlled by me. Right, right. It, you you're more controlling of the activity uh, yeah. that's happening. The activities that generate the sound. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah. really interesting how you've set up these sort of uh, situational uh, opportunities for performers to explore. You know, and I, I think that's uh, maybe maybe a uh, a really crucial element to this is to to have performers who are willing to go on that exploration with you. Yeah. You know that you've yeah. set up this uh, framework for them to work in, and then you really need a performer who's who's able to sort of yes. contribute and collaborate in that sense. Yes, yeah. that is absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because if you don't, then you end up, like I said, it becomes this sort of boring, uh, uninteresting thing, and you sort of feel embarrassed. You're out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you have a if you have a capable performer, it it's uh, they uh, reveal things to you that you yourself uh, weren't were were possible, and and, and and that just becomes very exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's almost addictive, you know. It's like uh, I want to see this performed so that I I want to see what these people can do with it, and and, uh, and you're going into it almost as blind as the as the person next to you, and they they you know they have no clue what they're going into, and and you in a sense have no no idea what you're going into because any any number of possibilities could arise yeah um, and that's exciting there's a certain thrill in it um Great. and i think you're right and, and for certain performers that to them is also more exciting than learning yet another piece and you know honing it down and performing it it's just a completely different you know it's not that one is better than the other it's just it teases a different part of their brain i think yeah well i think certain performers and i i would include myself in this group are are interested in the creative aspect yes. of music making. Perhaps, uh, you know, some some performers like that might delve into the world of composition, and, and you know I have a few times, mostly in mm -hmm. collaboration with other arts, uh, with poets or with dancers or with, you know, some other art form. Uh, but if if you are a performer and you have sort of this creative sense about you, it's nice if you can connect with composers like yourself who are interested in that sort of collaboration. And I, I point back also to Herbert Brun's music, you mm -hmm. know, so I, and I think your music is very much in that uh, vein as well. Uh, it sort of sparks that creative uh, ideas for performers who, who may already have leanings in that direction. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think for me, the, uh, the, you know, the creativity of the, of the uh, musician is, um, we, we tend to sort of segregate uh, the performer from the composer and all that, but um, I feel like the creativity of, of any um, individual, really, um, it, it shouldn't know any boundaries in a sense. And, uh, you know, the more you can encourage a, uh, a performer to, to be less of sort of an automaton who's just, you know, go drill this stuff and spit it out on stage... Um, the, the more they feel sort of alive in a sense, I think. And you're absolutely right. Some people uh, crave this and some people sort of shy away from it because, you know, they've, it's been drilled into their brains for years and years and years that it's, this is where their comfort zone is and this is what, what they should do. Right. Um, yeah, again, I don't advocate one over the other. I just, it's uh, <clears throat> it's interesting because now it's becoming uh, more and more required in schools to have improvisation um, and that's probably something we should talk about at some point. But improvisation for me has been sort of this nagging thing. Uh, we tend to uh, have huge misconceptions about it. Um, um, I encountered that once. I had uh, actually trajectory was was on a on a conference. I can't. It might have might have been one of the SCI conferences uh, years ago. 
and and you know, I I I had sort of struggled with what improvisation is for a long time, and um, um, came to this sort of understanding of what it is uh, based on my own studies and my own work. And I was sort of struck. I shouldn't have been, but I guess surprised that um, there's a, so much such misconceptions still out there about it in, in schools of music. Um, and what what do you feel like the misconceptions about it? Uh, well, most of the time, and even even in, in improvisational um, forays that I engaged in as as a, a composition student in my undergraduate, because it was required. Basically, the idea was that <clears throat> you get together and you do stuff, and there's a very 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 loose sense of who's doing what. So basically, what it comes down to is people on stage or in in, in an improvisation session are either not doing anything. Or can't stop doing whatever they're doing. So there's, <laughs> <laughs> so it oscillates, you know, uh-huh. and uh, there's there's no framework, and that's really the key word is you have to have a framework. Yeah. Every improvisational tradition out there yeah. uh, exists in the sense that there is a framework. Everybody's fully aware of what that framework is, and you work within it. Yeah, and some are more restrictive than others. Some are more open than others. But you cannot engage in improvisation without a framework. So, so are you of the opinion that sort of quote unquote free improvisation is not really possible? No, I mean, if you're doing free improvisation, you're basically going to fall back on what is familiar to you, right? And if you're lucky, uh, that intersects with the other people on stage. If not, then you end up with cacophony, or you end up with something uh, where people don't understand. I mean, it's it, you have, it's a sense of communication. Doesn't have to. It doesn't have to have pitch or rhythm or anything. It just has to have a sense of common touching points, common sort of intersections, common ideas, common something. We know where we are. We understand each other, uh, and we're going to engage in this dialogue vis-a-vis this framework. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. You, I've, and I've, I've seen it a lot. You know, people basically tend to fall to the familiar, or you know, they'll play their scales, or they, you know, just bang away, or. Right. Uh, explore things that are of interest to them but have got nothing to do with what maybe is happening on the stage or anything of the sort so it just falls apart yeah i think that's what you know i read uh of course cage would often talk about improvisation as being uh something he didn't appreciate uh some he said jazz improvisation deals with taste and memory is if i'm recalling the Mm. the quote correctly uh and so he, he really didn't apparently didn't care for jazz all that much because of that reason that people were just sort of playing what they already knew how to do and and his idea was that you know or at least his music that you were forced to solve a problem you know and and work it out and that it wasn't just you couldn't just rely on all the licks and and you know tricks that you already know you have to sort of solve this problem so and and i think maybe that's a similar position that you're taking here was am i right about that yeah, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily uh, say anything against jazz. Yes, jazz tends to be repetitive in sense, and people are playing things they've practiced. But that's the framework, right? Uh, and that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say: is that you you point out uh, that uh, good improvisation requires a certain framework uh, or a very clear, clearly delineated framework, and that's one of the things that jazz does exceedingly well. You know, with yeah. with both uh, formal structures. Uh, but also, you know, just the idea of uh, chord changes and, you know, form mm-hmm. and that type of thing. I mean, there's definitely yeah. a very identifiable structure going on yeah, uh, that can be identified. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, for, for me, you know, I'm speaking here in a theoretical sense. Um, right. I personally do like to, to listen to jazz, but even if I didn't, 
I still respect it and appreciate it because it's a tradition that exists uh, and with, like you're saying, very well-defined framework. Yeah. And yeah. that works. And even, actually, we did, you know, get a belt of uh, sort of free improv, free jazz. Of course. Uh, in the 60s that, that even even people working within it just quickly realized this is not this doesn't really work <laughs> yeah yeah uh so um, but but i think some people you know some artists found found a way i think ornette coleman uh, more specifically uh, yes. like even even today you know still still working and going and doing interesting stuff with quote unquote free improvisation i you know i i don't know enough about that to to say exactly you know what sort of structures they're working under, but it's yeah. clear that it's not just everybody doing their own thing, you know? Right, right, <laughs> Which, right. So, you, so. You, yeah, I mean, you have to, you can't strip the, all of the framework away and expect it to work. So you right. do, have to retain some things, yeah. And if you don't, you quickly find that you're falling back on, on those anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's my, that, yeah, so, um, and, yeah, the interesting thing, I mean, it, it reminded me when you said your students weren't ready for it, that um, that same piece, you know, um, I went to attend the rehearsal, and uh, the first time they uh, they played it, they were you know, I mean, even the body language. The students were sort of shuffling. They weren't clear. Their eyes were like darting back and forth. Are we? What am I doing? What are you doing? Kind of thing. Um, and it was kind of you know not not that interesting of a performance. And uh, and so I you know I basically said what what I was just what we were just talking about now is like yeah this is what what you're looking at in front of you these graphics and these uh, uh, you know, arrows and things, they're just uh, a framework. They're, they're, you know, if, if you uh, just look at the instructions and think of your instruments and think of, uh, you know, listen to the people around you and, and think of yourself as a member of an ensemble navigating this sort of sonic world, you're just basically existing in this framework and you can do whatever you want within the confines of the instructions. And that seemed to clarify it. And it, it, was, it was quite interesting to see the difference. Yeah. You know, night yeah. and day. Well, I'm I'm excited to try it again. We'll we'll try it again soon. And I I've got some students now that I think can uh, sort of have the creative uh, sense to be able to pull it yeah. off. So, so yeah, it's, isn't that interesting? I mean, students, uh, you know, performers, some performers, like you're saying, do do want to sort of jump, you know, head head in first <laughs> into this yeah. idea of like I want to I want to you know be the creative uh, force here or you know a participant. And some students don't even want to bother with it. They just want to read the score and, and perform it. There's a certain sense of comfort in it. Yeah. Well, and I think in in an ensemble, especially when you're dealing with students, there there takes a little. Uh, it takes a little time for there to be some buy-in to yes. new ideas yeah. and new ways yeah. of thinking. And so, you know, when yeah. when I first found your music and first that was when I f had first you know arrived here and uh, so. And now this is my what tenth year, starting my tenth year of teaching here. So all the students are on board now with with, wow, with yeah, what yeah. you know what what's going on. And uh, good for you, yeah, yeah. You've, so uh, it's but it takes creative. time to you know to cultivate absolutely. that that yeah, sort of uh, yeah idea. Okay, yeah, well let's yeah. uh, let's make a pivot here because I'm real interested to talk about how you're you you've sort of expanded uh, into other areas of creativity and. 
you know, one of the things, as I, I told you off the air earlier, was that uh, part of the impetus for this podcast was exploring artists and, and learning about artists who were working in more than one medium and how mm-hmm. how one sort of discipline could brush up against another or even one person could create in multiple disciplines. Yeah. So a couple of the things that you've done, installation pieces and also visual art and photography, you've delved into these worlds. And one of the pieces that I discovered, a, a recent work of yours that sort of captured my interest, is an installation piece called Meditation of Form and Measure. Can you describe that piece and talk about how it came about? And Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a piece, it's an installation that's a fairly straightforward installation in the sense that there's a, a, couple, a few speakers set up in a space and, uh, uh, and it plays back some pre-recorded material uh, in, in random uh, sort of iterations and, and repetitions. Uh, and then it also has a component of uh, allowing people to uh, contribute. So basically, it's quite a meditative piece in the sense that the, the material is uh, restrictive and uh, repetitive. Uh, I should say the framework is restrictive and repetitive. The material itself can change a lot. So there's these, um, what shall we call them, events, I say, of, of like about 10 seconds long that all have the same form. They, it's, a, it's a few sine tones, simple sine waves that uh, swell up and die. And over them, or in, in conjunction with them, are snippets of text uh, that primarily come from a poem. Uh, by this, the, the title of the piece is taken from, from the poem, uh, Meditation on Form and Measure, and it's by Charles Wright. Um, and so within that framework of 10 seconds, you might get, you know, a maximum of five lines together or one line or, you know, it's just basically I took the, the, the poem, which happens to be in fives, uh, arranged in, in, in sort of um, the idea of five flows through the, uh, the poem uh, as far as its form is concerned. Uh, and I recorded it with a, with a reader and then I chopped it up in various ways, sort of somewhat respecting the form of the, of the poem. And then Basically, those get repeated in, and distributed them over the five channels by a scheme, and they get repeated and cycled through. And so at, in any given iteration, you might get any line. Who knows? Um, and it could be of any length. You might get clusters of lines. You might get a gibberish. You might get things sort of that create new syntax between, uh, you know, a word here, a couple words there, and you get sort of a new sentence. Or So there's a certain interest to that. And I, I, uh, I've always been interested in poetry, for its imagery, but also primarily for its uh, the, the sonic qualities of the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I get words stuck in my head sometimes as I do uh, songs. You know, I just keep repeating a word in my head for a few days, and it's just the sound of the word and sort of the rhythm of it that gets stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, I'm, I wasn't interested in writing songs or you know straightforward things. So I, I, I find this quite exciting. I'll put this installation on sometimes, and um, you know, some of the intersections, some of the things that arise each time, they're just quite beautiful i find them uh, personally and so uh, uh and so what what actually makes it an installation piece is it in um in a particular space or environment or what what makes yeah, it something it gets other set than... up in a space essentially with five speakers and the idea is that uh, uh you know it's it's set up in a somewhat largish space uh with five speakers around and maybe uh, chairs or benches that people can sit and and uh 
it's it's a very meditative piece because of this quite repetitive uh, thing that it goes through. It's every there's ten seconds of sound, and I think about um, two or three seconds of silence. So it's very repetitive. It's almost like breathing. Um, you know, you get this swell of sound and a little bit of silence. Swell of sound, a little bit of silence. Swell of sound, silence. Very repetitive, and it has almost that sort of you know, like you're sitting there and you're breathing. Little is left to tell. Could he not? How in joyous eddies its two arms conflowed and flowed united on. And without a word, never been. At the tip, he would always pause to dwell on the receding stream. Unfamiliar scene. And it's set up in a, in, a, in a space. It doesn't doesn't do well in a, in a on a stage in a performance kind of thing. And it's uh, because it's nonlinear, because it's just kind of cycling through these materials. Uh, you can come in, you can leave, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and then the the other component, which is ideally set up in a separate room, but at the same time, is a little microphone, and then um, snippets from the same text appear on on a screen, and you basically can record your voice, record yourself as a participant in the. Ah. Uh, an installation um, reading the same lines so originally there's one female reader uh, she's the main um, reader essentially and, and uh, when you first hear the first performance of it that's all you hear is her her voice and as more and more I, I, I set it up at Seamus in, in March uh, and then you know there's now there's a, a, a wider variety of sounds there's uh, a few different female voices there's several male voices and people are reading different ways, and you know sometimes they'll read one line, one word doesn't, you know, it's it's quite open. There's again a set of instructions that people follow. So as the uh, as, as the more it gets set up and, and installed in different places, uh, the the wider the variety of uh, of the uh, the sounds will become, and the, the the way people are reading. And it's just basically that same uh, poem for now. So it's it's you know it's getting richer and richer sonically. Yeah. But it's still again within that very confined. 10 seconds of sound, a couple of seconds of silence, that sort of thing. So, And uh, so where where have you been able to have this piece shown? Uh, you mentioned the conference. Uh, in, yeah, Seamus in March. It, basically, I finished it uh, in December so okay. of last year, so it's fairly new. Fairly new. Um, it's an idea that I've been toying around with for a long, long time. Uh, initially, it's just going to be clusters of, of sign tones. Uh, you know, I'm a little weird that way. I find these things interesting, but I don't think anyone else would. <laughs> <laughs> so I just basically combined a couple of different ideas um, um, of these sort of clusters of sign tones that are uh, uh, a few hertz apart sometimes. So they create beatings, and occasionally they'll gliss up or down. So there's... In of themselves, they're quite interesting to listen to, and then they're coupled with these uh, words on top of them. So it, it became, uh, you know, sort of a combination of two ideas. Finished in December, so it got installed at Seamus in I think March, okay. And then I'm uh, setting it up again at the uh, New York City Electronic Music Festival in uh, in June up oh. in New York. Oh, terrific! Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been received well i suppose yeah great well it, it sounds yeah. interesting just from uh what i've been able to hear on your website so i'm sure in, yeah. a, in an actual Thanks. space that it would be quite 
quite interesting to sit. But I like those kind of meditative sort of pieces uh, that you yeah. can just sort of yeah. sit with and be with for yes. a, for a time yeah. being. So that's that's yeah. nice. And the idea with the space is that it's you know somewhat dimly lit, so that it's inviting for this sort of uh, an incubator for this sort of idea, like you're saying, to just kind of sit there and, and, and absorb it. Yeah. Well, uh, making the transition from concert music composer to visual artist, or in this case, installation work and uh, photography, we can talk about a little bit. Um, it I, it seems like for this piece, the impetus for making the transition into it being an installation work was simply that as a concert piece, perhaps it wasn't as effective as as a piece that's installed in a space and, and then just people can sort of come and go. Like, as you said, it didn't, maybe it didn't work as a concert piece. Right. Would you yeah. say that's kind of the, what, what made you want to go into the installation idea or had there been other pieces before this one or? Um, there have been. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. I mean, it so far I've, I've been working in somewhat confined, um, uh, like my, my various identities have not spilled into each other as much as they probably should. And, and uh, so I get these ideas and I'll say, oh, okay, you know, this could become a piece or this is never going to work as a piece. So it could work as an installation. Um, this is pure sound. And sometimes the, the installations will have a visual component to them. And so, you know, it's in some, in some of these installations, uh, sound and the sonic and the visual coexist or commingle uh in some they don't um and meditation on uh, is is basically purely sonic in a sense uh, other than you know the space being dimly lit there's really not much else visually happening um and that for me works really well with that installation because there's a uh, very uh, potent and deliberate austerity to it both sonically and visually. So I don't know if I can answer your question uh, clearly as to what makes it installation versus a piece other than um, what does the idea need in a sense? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's where I was going is sort of how do you, how does one make a transition to installation from music composition? How, how was that for you? And it sounds like it was just the idea for the piece came up and it seemed it was sort of a practical idea that, that yeah, it needed a, yeah. a different forum uh, to be experienced. Uh, you know, I had to learn, I think um, I sort of touched on this earlier. I had to learn to listen to my pieces in a sense um, because I, I struggled with myself a lot um, being, being, you know, having tendencies for being a control freak uh, <laughs> with my, with my music. And, you know, having these ideas that wanted to go in the in this direction of being open, uh, and I had to sort of basically learn to get myself out of the way, in a sense, um, so that this idea, because if I if I were to take charge of it, I would want it to be not what it wants to be, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. And so I've I've had to, over the years learn to listen to to uh, to my pieces and and to, to my ideas and sort of let them evolve. Um, obviously you're the one who's evolving them, but let them give them breathing space. And, and in a sense, they sort of work themselves out one way or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the installations, you know, I could force them into becoming pieces, but that doesn't work or pieces. I could force them into becoming installations, but that's contrived. So it's basically letting, letting the idea, um, you know, tell you what it wants to do. And it sounds cliche, but, but it seems to work. No, it uh, makes, I think that's, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, yeah. anytime I've, 
a lot of my own compositions have just been for myself, you know, and people occasionally right. say, oh, well, can I play that piece? And I said, well, well, not really. You can, you can have me, you know, and I'll come and perform <laughs> it for you, but it's not really available, you know, I, because, and I don't know if that's, I don't know if for me, if it's the same, I don't think it's a control idea. It's just that I haven't, for me, I have a hard time committing things to paper, you know, uh-huh. I, I, I'm constant. I'm a constant reviser. I always want uh-huh. and every time I revisit something that I've done, I, I want to tweak it and change it and, you know, do uh-huh. something different or now I don't like this part and I'm going to change it. So I, I guess for me, it's just the idea that I don't want to commit it to one version, you know, that then I would go out and, but then, but then I have had pieces too, where I've just made it and it goes out into the world. And like you said, Sometimes those things have to have a life of their own, and maybe someone yeah. does something with it that you uh, didn't necessarily intend. But that's that's part of the uh, it's part of the process, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing is, you know, um, a friend of mine pointed this out one time. Um, we 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 think like you know, you give somebody a piece that's fully notated, um, even a piece that everybody knows. You know, I don't know. Pick a classical piece, a Beethoven sonata or something, or Chopin Prelude. Uh, we think that we know it. We think that everybody knows it. We think that we should, uh, you know, have very clear expectations as to what that thing is. But in the hands of a lousy performer, um, a lot of stuff goes wrong, and a lot of stuff that is established goes wrong. We just happen to be able to pick up on it because we know it. Right. But even something that is fully notated, that is well known, could still be performed badly. Yeah, and I'm not course. talking about, you know, a, a newly uh, a student who's just learning for the first time. I'm talking about, like, you know, uh, well-established performers who might not interpret it in a good way or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that can still happen. So it's, it's um, you know, going with what you're saying where your pieces aren't fully notated or have fully formed, uh, um, you know, shells in a sense, um, that there's still the same thing, I think, just you know, it's more susceptible to misinterpretation or to, uh, um, you know, things going wrong. But but you're absolutely right. At some point, you have to let them go and they have to <laughs> have a life of their own. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's uh, let's make a pivot now and talk a little bit about uh, another uh, sort of creative activity of yours, which is the photography. And I, I've been I was sort of interested to to see all of these photographs on your website. I mean, there there are quite a bit, uh, quite a few of them, and. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that and how you got involved with photography and uh, your approach to that. You definitely have an eye for sort of finding interesting patterns or textures. And particularly, I notice a lot of interest in shadows. I see the whole series of uh, photographs with shadows of various kinds and yeah. uh, reflections and this type of thing. So let's talk a little bit about your photography. How'd you get started with it and what, what are you doing with that now? And go from sure. there. Yeah, I mean the visual. It's interesting. Before I uh, before I got into music, when I was uh, in, you know back home in my country, I uh, I couldn't study music because I couldn't afford it. So uh, the visual art was uh, you know all you needed was a piece of paper and a pencil, <laughs> <laughs> and you could create. So I you know I did I did visual work on my, uh, sort of as a creative outlet as a kid a lot more than I did anything musical, just because that's what was available. And then, as I when I came to this country and I worked on, uh, uh, you know, got into college, all I wanted to do was music. And uh, for a little bit, I kept up the visual work, but then I, you know, just 
surged into music and, and went from um, undergrad to you know masters and doctorate and uh, all that stuff and then eventually um, um, next thing you know you know 13 years or so have passed and um, you know I'd been sort of touching on on art a little bit but uh, about uh, six years ago it's sort of like had an awakening of, of, of sorts and uh, uh, suddenly the visual art side of me, and I was like, oh, hey, you know, pay attention to me kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> so I uh, all of a sudden got into visual art again um, and uh, became interested in it and found it, uh, you know, um, quite effective as a means of, of expression. Um, and our, uh, photography came sort of around the same time, uh, a little bit later, and um, not as a, as a deliberate thing. You know, I didn't, I didn't so, you know, go out and buy a camera and said, yeah, I'm going to become a photographer now. It just kind of by way of, of starting to paying, paying attention to uh, the visual side of things, uh, which I'd already always been sort of interested in, but not as a, uh, a thing, you know, not as, as a something that I'm going to do now. Um, I became interested in photography and, and uh, it became, you know, just one other thing that I could do. Uh, and it find, I find it quite uh, uh, fun and, and, uh, you know, I walk around a lot. I'm lucky to live in in a situation. I live in the city, and I, I walk and walk to work, and I walk everywhere. Uh, driving isn't fun, so it's it's almost kind of this meditative thing. I, I can walk, I can uh, observe things, I can um, take a minute to you know just frame something either mentally or actually with a camera, and uh, and just uh, snap it. And and it's, um, it's it's I don't know. It's it's a very simple way of uh, of being in a sense. Um, and I see it just as an extension of that. It's almost like a record of things that catch my eye. And shadows happen to be uh, all around us. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially on and in D.C., we get these um, uh, bright, sunny days, inevitably accompanied with high winds. And uh, there's leaves and, you know, city textures and, and sidewalks and railings and all sorts of things that, that just create these very stark, sensual sort of um, living uh, theater almost mm -hmm. um, of shadows dancing and just kind of uh, vibrant things and, and they catch my eye so that's that's basically it you know there's no there's no um, I haven't studied photography I haven't really uh, I don't consider myself a photographer it's, it's almost embarrassing because I can't really talk technical stuff uh, to any photographer yeah um, yeah but you know I seem to have a decent eye for it and um, I probably at some point I mean I, I would like to get more into sort of the technical side know what i'm doing a little bit more yeah yeah <laughs> aside from uh from you know just being able to frame something and then having to die for it um but you know if you put me in a in a in a room with lights and and, and fancy cameras i wouldn't know what to do with anything <laughs> <laughs> right well you know yeah. it's funny it, 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 there's something to the the there's some connection I, I feel like with the way that you make music and and your sort of eye for photography or visual art that that right. are related and and I I wonder if you have a way of articulating that for yourself um, I'm not sure I have a way of articulating it for you right now but I yeah. definitely see parallels between you know this installation work and what you're doing with your photography and and you said that at some point you you said the visual side of you sort of, uh, or something awakened, you know, and yeah. there's this, Hey, pay yeah. attention to me. Um, there's something going on here that you need to pay attention to. I think it's, I think it's probably already there. It's just manifesting mm -hmm. itself in a different, uh, way. 
Um, uh, but other than that, I can't really articulate for you, you know, uh, or I can't really articulate how, how I perceive it, but I, I definitely see connections is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the only thing I can think to say would be that um, I have a, a sort of an affinity for the abstract, like a distillation <laughs> of form in a sense, um, which is partly why I'm attracted to shadows. They're, they're sort of the, uh, the essence of the object in a sense, you know, uh-huh. because you, you take away the, the texture and the color and everything, and it's just this, it's almost an abstraction without being an, you can still see the original, but there's an absence of abstraction about it. And it's a different, um, sort of a different life. Um, I, I that's wonder, really the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if some of your other visual art uh, pieces are a way for you to let go of some of the control that you might, uh, you, cause you've mentioned it several times that you, uh, have sort of been a control freak is what you, you said a number of yeah. times with your music. And so I wonder if the visual art is a way for you to sort of, let go of some of that control. I, I'm thinking specifically of your these pieces with the tempera powder on the paper, where mm-hmm. it looks like they're sort of just dropped uh, um, and, and piles on the paper on, on paper, or, or sort of splatters on the paper with these yeah. these. And yeah. even one set is called unintentional patterns. And right, so <laughs> d- that's definitely letting go of of some control there. I mean, I I suppose you're in some sort of control of throwing the the paint or the powder on the paper, but there's definitely a, an element of chance happening. Here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's almost like, I think I said earlier, kind of half jokingly, but there's a sense, there's a truth to it. It becomes addictive. Uh, when I, when I was doing these pieces with the dropping, uh, uh, basically I create these plaster shells uh, by dipping water balloons in, in plaster and, and, and popping the balloons. So you get this sort of empty shell and I fill it with whatever, and I stand at a height and drop it onto a piece of paper, there is a palpable kind of sense of um, high almost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when that thing hits the hits the paper, and it explodes. And in some cases, I, I remember one of them, I just laughed out loud. I was so giddy. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's weird. And I was like, what, you know, I, I don't, don't react to the to, to things usually in that, in that way, but I but I just it was an uncontrollable giddiness, and it's it's not because I made it, um, it's because it happened, and that's what I find very interesting, very exciting in, in both music and um, and the visual world. You know, it's it's uh, the photog- photography is the same way. You know, I don't make these photographs, uh, which I kind of like actually. I like that I, you know, I didn't I took the photo, but. I didn't make it, you know, that yeah. thing was there. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, we're now getting into the psychology, maybe it's an extension of the fact that I, <laughs> I've never liked the, the, the spotlight. I, I don't <laughs> like to, you know, to be pointed out and say, hey, this person did this, you know, I just like it to be, and um, I just want to experience it like everyone else. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So but these, is, uh, yeah. I have one question about the sort of uh, more nuts and bolts question about how you do these uh Piece, there's a series called Gravity Works, and it mm-hmm. says tempera powder on paper. And I'm always intrigued when I go to like art galleries and I and I see the artist description of their materials of what they are, you know. Right. Um, and uh, and so tempera powder on paper is what this says, but it doesn't say sort of what type of paper and uh, like you know you you mentioned the process of making these balloons and throw So I'm sort of just curious yeah. about the nuts and bolts of how that particular series, because to me that it looks wet. It, it looks like, it doesn't look like powder. It looks, uh, yeah. In some cases, those, uh, 
those again were uh, mixtures of things. This is this this is basically where I make the uh, the plaster balloons. And again, I take a water balloon and dip it in in uh, wet plaster, and then let it dry, and then pop the balloon. So then th there's a shell, like half you know uh -huh. half a looks like half an egg or three quarters of an egg or something like that, a little bit bigger. And that's my sort of medium of delivery, so to speak. And then I fill that with sometimes. Uh, it's not just tempera powder. There's like wet paint with it usually. So it'll be like uh, either acry acrylic paint or something like that. And mix it up in different layers. And I, you know, it's, it's, there's no recipe or anything. I just pour a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of whatever. And then stand at some height, three, four, five, six feet above some sheet of paper or something like that. And just drop it on the thing. Usually aiming at the center just so I don't, you know, make a mess. Um, right. And then it explodes in who knows what pattern, you know, because it depends on how the shell is and how thick it is and what kind of paint and all that sort of stuff. And it just goes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but they all have this sort of distinctive, you know, pattern. It's, if you make a thousand of these, they're going to start to look similar in the sense yeah. that they're all going to have that splatter pattern. Yeah. But in individually, they're, it's impossible to control. And that's, I think that is fundamentally what I'm interested in, this idea that you can create repetitiveness and yet at the same time, endless variety. Yeah. Um, and that's what meditation on form and measure is. You know, you get these quite repetitive. You can predict them. They're all identical in length. But individually, inside of them, you have no way of predicting what's going to happen next. And um, that's it's a similar idea in a sense. Yeah. That's, so, I find that very exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And, and it's a, it exciting to me and interesting how one sort of creative world brushes up against another and that you can definitely see that in your work. So that's, yeah. you know, that's really interesting to me. Well, um, we're just about out of time here. And, uh, I always like to close out the show by getting some advice or wisdom or whatever you want to say about living and sustaining a creative life. So do you have any closing thoughts on that topic? Boy, uh, that's a tall order. <laughs> I don't feel qualified to give advice. I don't know. I mean, I would I would just say uh, keep your ears and eyes and, and mind open. If your antenna is working, you'll pick up all sorts of things. That's uh, that's uh, that's the best advice I can give. Terrific advice. Yeah. yeah. Steve, thank yeah. you so much for being on the show. Thank you, John. This is fantastic. I applaud you on what you're doing. This is uh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank thank you for the opportunity. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, you can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>